0: You are listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that have global impact, hearing from the people who make them and live by them. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. Bill Browder is a naturalised British citizen living in the UK. He made his fortune in Russia as an investor. But things changed when his colleague, the Russian lawyer and tax auditor Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered a massive tax scam totaling hundreds of billions of dollars. The officials he accused of stealing funds had him thrown into jail, where he was beaten, tortured and then died in custody in 2009. Browder decided to act, pushing for accountability of those involved in Magnitsky's death. Browder's activism has led to the passing of the Global Magnitsky Act, which authorises the US government to sanction international government officials believed to be behind human rights violations by freezing their assets and banning their travel. Magnitsky Acts have also been passed in the UK, Canada, and several EU states. Browder, earlier this summer, published his second autobiographical book detailing his fight against Putin and the Russians that he believes are responsible for his friend's death, and those involved in kleptocracy and money laundering. Freezing Order follows his first book, Red Notice. We sat down to talk about his work targeting corrupt Russian officials, and I began by asking him if the war in Ukraine and the international stigmatising of the Putin regime had made his activism work any easier.
1: Oh, there's no question it's gotten easier doors are swinging wide open um in a lot of different places people wanting to talk to me i I could could not get a single meeting with anybody in the british government um before and now all of a sudden i'm getting calls from people in the um you know cabinet ministers calling asking for advice and and not just the british government i get calls from the canadian government and the u.s government asking for advice and and certainly there are uh, there's a lot more interest because Everyone's can watch on their television as as innocent people are being you know destroyed and and children killed and and so on and so forth and and everyone understands that this comes from from you know Putin's you know criminal activities and a big part of his criminal activity is stealing money and and um, a big part of that stolen money <laughs> finds its way into our economies in the West and um, the only difference between him and the mafia of Italy or Pablo Escobar is that he's got the powers of a sovereign state.
0: Let's go back to the origins of of that mission. Talk to us about why you started the Hermitage Fund, your your investment fund uh, in Russia, and walk us through the journey of how it's evolved more or less into an investigative firm.
1: Well, um, when I, uh, so I come from a, a strange family, my, Ameri- my uh, American family, I should say. My, my grandfather was the head of the American Communist Party in the 1930s, and 1940s. And so uh, I was born in 1964. And when I was going through my teenage rebellion, I had this epiphany one day, which was that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in, in Russia, and I eventually um, achieved that. I, I um, first moved from California to London. Um, and then I moved from London to Moscow. And I set up an investment fund. It was called the Hermitage Fund and to invest in the newly privatized companies of Russia and the former Soviet Union. And the fund grew from nothing to $4.5 billion, which made me the largest foreign investor in Russia. And, um, and then I discovered something that I hadn't really... Thought about in advance, which was that every company that I was investing in was being robbed blind um, By the oligarchs who were the majority shareholders of these companies And it was interesting because this was at the time that Putin had just come to power And um, Putin was fighting with the same guys that I was fighting with And so every time I would um, They were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me And so every time I would publicize one of these scandals he would come down like a ton of bricks on these oligarchs. And so in the first couple of years of the Putin regime, I was actually thinking that he was a good guy because he was doing all this stuff that was helpful and seemingly reformist and you know honest. And, um, and it worked out very well for me for, and until about uh, late 2003. And that was the moment that he arrested the richest oligarch in Russia, Mikhail Hordakovsky, the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He arrested him, he put him on trial and he allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia on trial sitting in a cage. And, um, and that had a very um, uh, profound impact on all the other oligarchs who, who saw this and said to, them, said to themselves, I don't want to sit in a cage. And so they all went to Putin and said, what do we have to do so we don't sit in the cage? And Putin said, very simple, 50%. This, um, and this was the moment that Putin became the richest man in the world. And that's when all my troubles began. I was expelled from the country. I was declared a threat to national security. My offices were raided. They seized all of our documents. And, and the documents were then used in a very complex fraud in which they stole $230 million of taxes that my firm paid to the Russian government. I had this, um, young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky discover the fraud, expose the fraud, testify against the officials involved. And he was subsequently arrested by the same officials and put in pre-trial detention where he was then tortured for 358 days and killed at the age of 37 on November 16th, 2009, leaving a wife and two children. And that was the point in which I I put aside all of my business activities and I made a vow to his memory, to his family, to myself, that I was going to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And... A big part of that was to figure out who got the money, the $230 million that he was killed over.
0: Mm. I just want to quickly ask about the Magnitsky Act because Sergei Magnitsky, he's so lionized in your book, and yet it seems that there are people who have an issue with his name being in the Magnitsky Act, and there were efforts in the U.S. to try and remove the name from that piece of legislation. Why do you think his name is problematic uh, for for some for some people, and he clearly, uh, you know, did a whole lot of good investigating uh, Russian criminality and klep- kleptocracy, and paid the ultimate price. He died, what must have been a horrific, gruesome death in a cold, dark Russian prison, on his own, his loved ones far away. Why why do you think that aspect of the Magnitsky Act has become has has been problematic in some in some areas.
1: Well, it's problematic primarily for Putin because, so the story of Sergei Magnitsky is the defining story of Putin being a crook. And Putin understands that and he understands that, you know, sometimes a story is, is more powerful than anything else. And so every time that Magnitsky's name is mentioned, you can, you, uh, in Putin's presence, you can see his face, you know, get all angry because it just upsets him. And so, um, he he went on a mission, first of all, to stop the Magnitsky Act, and it became his stated top foreign policy priority. Uh, but beyond that, if he couldn't get it repealed, then he wanted to make sure that Magnitsky's name had nothing to do with it. So there wasn't this constant reminder every day that somebody is sanctioned, that Putin is a uh, a, a low life criminal, and and. Um, Putin went on a major mission to do that in in the United States. It's written about in great detail in my book. And he also did the same thing in the European Union. And and in the European Union, he had good help from from, uh, Viktor Orban, his friend, who is the prime minister of Hungary. And every decision at the European Union requires unanimity. And so when the Europeans passed the Magnitsky Act, uh, his name was not on it because um, Putin didn't want it on it.
0: Um, A major theme in your book, is how russians use or rather misuse the legal profession uh as a way of persecuting and shutting down their political opponents uh activists such as yourselves who are pitted against them uh I, I'm so interested in this, and I think and it's and it's clearly such such a huge issue. And and partly the reason why it's such a huge issue is that lawyers actually do really, really well from uh, Russian business. Uh, you made the point, you know, Russians both in, in London, in New York, in Washington, they are busy spending money on legal fees, getting divorced, getting visas, uh and, and, and things like that. And there was a story in your book where a lawyer who was initially working for you, a lawyer called John Moscow, he did something quite incredible and he switched sides um, to then represent uh, a company that you accuse of being behind that theft, the, the multi-hundred multi million dollar uh, theft uh, of stolen taxes.
1: Yeah, it's one of the most shocking parts of my whole experience was, <clears throat> you know, you kind of expect trouble from Russians, but you don't expect trouble from Americans or British Professionals and and in this particular case, I had hired this man. His name is John Moscow. <laughs> he uh, he was a former U- U.S. prosecutor um, in the city of New York against um, organized crime and money laundering. Went into private practice and was considered to be one of the top people for uh, shutting down criminal networks. And, and so I hired him after Sergey uh, or after we discovered the um, theft of the two hundred thirty million dollars. Um, to try to figure out where that $230 million went. And um, he was pretty good. And he, he gave us a whole bunch of tools to figure out where the money went and and helped us come up with a subpoena to see you know, the banks where the money flowed through. And then one day he just abruptly stopped working for us without any explanation. And um, and then we carried on with our mission of using some of the great tools that he created for us. And we found the money. And some of the money we found had actually gone to buy expensive uh, luxury apartments in New York. And once we found the uh, luxury apartments, we we made a complaint to the New York DA's office, the same person in the DA's office he introduced me to. And he the DA's office passed it to the U.S. attorney's office, and they opened up a criminal investigation and they then filed a, uh, a federal forfeiture order to freeze the properties. And, and when they filed the forfeiture order in court, the next day, who shows up to represent the people who got the money? None other than John Moscow, my, my lawyer, who helped me find the money. So he's going from representing the victims of a crime to representing the alleged perpetrators of the crime. And you, you don't have to look at the, my footnote in the book to understand that, that that's like against the rules. Um, but the fact that this could happen, and these guys were making millions, maybe tens of millions, off of this um, Russian, you know, the, doing this stuff for the Russians, and and this was, you know, just one example of of what I think is a much much bigger problem. As you mentioned, the, that the lawyers are making so much money off of Russians and buying properties and doing mergers and acquisitions and fund investments and suing each other and divorces and so on and so forth, that um, it's it's like a you know these people are. You know, have become these lawyers have become multimillionaires uh, through their relationship with the Russians. And, and they have effectively, and this is the most important point, they, they have become agents of the Russian government. They've become foreign agents of the Russian government.
0: In your case, you were subjected, you had been served with the US subpoena in very dramatic uh, ways um, with these professional servers running after you, stalking you, harassing you and your family. You had to sit through two depositions where the lives and the securities of your whistleblowers, who had to remain anonymous, uh, their lives were at stake, and it was only because you happened to have a great legal team, who co- who, who coached you uh, in the best way possible to to preserve um, the, the the safety of confidential information that was not. Uh, That was not relevant to the case, but that could have serious, serious uh, implications for the safety of 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 your whistleblowers, of the people involved uh, in uncovering um, all of these criminal networks. I mean, the U.S. justice system gave you no protection, Um, according to your account the rule of law was not protecting you uh, from, from the Russians. If anything, it was aiding the Russians in pursuing you and pursuing your whistleblowers and the people back in Russia without whom your work in exposing corruption, money laundering, all of this illegal activity would not have been possible.
1: Yeah, there, there's, there's a word for this. It's called lawfare, where they take law and they turn it into a weapon. And the Russians um, have been really, really good at that and, and of course, assisted by all these Western lawyers who make all this money off of it. And so, as you said, um, there we have a situation where I was, um, you know, lives were at stake and um, the judge and the rules and so on were so... Um, and you know, if you go to a judge and you say, "Look, that they're gonna," and we went to the judge and said, "Look, there's people's lives were at risk," and this was right at, that, right at the time that Boris Nemtsov had just been murdered, who was involved in our whole campaign, and we said, "Lives are at risk," and and um, and and it's it's such a weird, uh, you know, it, it one thinks that the legal system is all very upright and proper, but it's all very antiquated and and um, easily abused. And and it's been abused in every possible way in my case. And uh, I mean, I, I could go on and on and on about all, all these lawyers, and, and they're so aggressive. And I, I'm somebody who can handle it. I've I've you know made some, some money in my life, and I could I, I you know I can I can take the hit and I could pay the fees if I needed to. But imagine this happens to uh, to you, uh, you know, or to, to any other journalist, and, and it has happened to many other journalists.
0: Yeah, Catherine Belton, the Financial Times journalist who wrote a book about Putin. She uh, won won a long court case, but she was pursued in a similar way. Christopher Steele, the former MI6 uh, intelligence officer who compiled the dossier against uh, Trump and Putin, he has been tied up in legal cases from uh, Russian oligarchs uh, named in the dossier for years and years and years. And they've both described how these these law these cases uh, even if they are thrown out a bunch of times even if the Russians have, Really, no credible case. The fact that they have the money—what do criminals have? They have a lot of money. They have money available to throw at their opponents to force them to go to court, and money that many, in many occasions, their their opponents don't have. And Catherine Belton's case—she's lucky to have had the backing of the Financial Times—but um, a lot of people don't have um, that kind of support.
1: Yeah, it's terrible, and and there there's uh, and, and and it's it becomes basically legal terror. Um, and it's the system is completely not uh, fit for purpose. That that that, uh, that somebody with um, money can terrorize a journalist, a whistleblower, an activist who doesn't have money into submission. And it happens all the time. And the laws need to be changed. And I'm involved in in trying to change the laws because it's just so unjust and unfair.
0: I wanted to ask. The Hermitage Fund, at one point it controlled, I think, the largest foreign investment uh, 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 fund in in Russia. It it held several billions of dollars worth of assets. You have been described by some of your opponents, as you mentioned in the book, as an oligarch yourself. Has it been awkward for you? Uh, One of the biggest transparency campaigners and anti-corruption activists in Russia, has it been awkward for you, the fact that you've made a total fortune out of Russia. And, and how do you respond to people who try to use your wealth and your history in Russia to try and discredit you?
1: Well, I mean, anytime you have opponents, they try to use anything to discredit you. Um, I mean, in my case, the, the way I made money in Russia was, was sort of the exact opposite of how the oligarchs made money. So the oligarchs were stealing money. I was buying shares in the companies they controlled. And then i was exposing their their corruption schemes and so my my main money-making vehicle was um, anti-corruption and i mean it's, it's it's kind of a rare situation um, where you can make money and do good in the same job
0: i, I want to just finish by by asking you about putin's personal wealth I, by many estimates and they are in the estimates um because so much of this is difficult to prove. Uh Putin is the richest man in the whole world. And there is a very interesting uh part of your book where you describe the curious tale um of this cellist, uh this man who I think he has a secondhand cello, he wears scruffy clothes. Uh on paper he doesn't have much of a salary, but he is actually the richest musician in the world, far richer than Jay-Z, than Paul McCartney. Uh, and and you believe that because he has had a lifelong friendship with Vladimir Putin since from a very young age, that he is one of Putin's closest friends and allies, you believe that he is es- essentially a, a placeholder sitting on this huge, huge bank account that contains vast sums of money. And you believe that that is how Putin uh, keeps his wealth out of uh, out of his name, uh, he has this sort of deniability where he spreads all the the money that he has stolen, and he puts it uh, he puts people he trusts in charge of these funds. Um, Walk us, walk us through that, and and how difficult has that been for uh, for people like yourselves who try to track down where Putin's money is kept. The difficulties you come across, um, and how how important were the Panama Papers in helping you uh, get some more of that information out?
1: So Putin doesn't keep any money in his own name. <clears throat> Why doesn't he keep any money in his own name? Because if he did, somebody could blackmail him with the the bank statement or the property deed or whatever. And he understands blackmail better than anybody because he spent his whole life blackmailing people to become agents of his in the past. And so he, he, he's a, he loves money, he's stolen an enormous amount of it, but he can't keep any in his own name. So he needs to find people whose names to keep it in. And one of the, um, the best discoveries that came in the last few years was in the Panama Papers. And the anti-hero from the Panama Papers in Russia was this man, his name was Sergei Roldugin. Sergei Roldugin uh, was a cellist, and he was a cellist living in St. Petersburg. And amazingly, and and sort of hard to explain, here was this cellist who had received, um, in companies that he controlled, $2 billion. And the money came in from oligarchs, it came in from Russian state banks, it came in from all different sources and the obvious question is, why would all these people be paying $2 billion to a cellist? This is a man um, who was Putin's best friend from childhood. He was the godfather of Putin's, one of Putin's daughters. He introduced Putin to his wife. And he's a person that Putin trusts. And so the reason that, that Sergei Roldugin um, was sitting in front of $2 billion is he was one of many um, nominees, trustees, proxies, for Vladimir Putin, and that's how Vladimir Putin keeps his money.
0: Well, you have been uh, quite a thorn in Putin's side uh, since you started your investigative work and you have been uh, targeted by the Putin regime on several occasions. You've also worked very closely with Boris Nemtsov, uh, Sergei Magnitsky, one of your colleagues, of course, uh, both of whom uh, are widely believed uh, to have been killed on the orders of Vladimir Putin. Since the war in Ukraine, I'm talking about how Putin uh, now has lost so much of his credibility. Some of the levers, some of the levers and the uh, levers of influence he maybe could have pulled before, he's becoming uh, the bet noir of 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 Europe in a way that uh, he hasn't been before. Given that he has demonstrated on the world stage the lengths that he really is willing to go to get his own way, so how do you feel that the uh the 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 fact that putin is now pretty openly reviled across the west um does that make you feel a little safer or do you still fear that his long arm can can reach you
1: well one of the main ways that putin wanted to get me and and i should point out that, that putin wants to kill me it's it's sort of established it's been stated um uh the main way he wanted to kill me um, was not by putting Novichok on my doorknob, or maybe he did want to do that, but decided not to. But the main way he wanted to kill me was to get me back to Russia via international legal um, means, arrest, extradition, uh, etc., and then kill me in a Russian prison. That's, that was his objective. And the way he went about that was by issuing Interpol arrest warrants. They've issued eight Interpol arrest warrants uh, for me. In, in the past, if I were to travel to certain European countries, they would respect a Russian arrest warrant. At this point, I think that that's no longer the case. But that doesn't, none of this means that Putin doesn't still want to kill me. Um, what it means is that he's got to find another method to do so because the um, asking for a country to arrest me and extradite me is not going to work. And so the best way to um, prevent them from doing something terrible is not to have any patterns that are exploitable. So not to um, uh, take the same bus every morning at the same time or not to walk your dog at the same moment or whatever that is. And, and so I've had to explicitly and very consciously live a life of no habits and patterns.
0: I mean, that must be so exhausting. And all of these sort of risk calculations you must be making on a daily basis, all of these adjustments to your behavior, that must take its toll emotionally or is it sort of background noise to you?
1: I mean, its it's been going on for a long time. This this trouble started when Sergei Magnitsky was murdered in 2009. So there's been 13 years of, of really ugliness. But at the same time, I can also argue that um, what this has led to is a is a mission that I've been on for for the last thirteen years, which is to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky. And my mission has led me to pass laws in different countries, as start law, start money laundering investigations against these uh, criminals in the Putin regime, um, to publicize things in a way that nobody knew, to write books that uh, educate you know millions of people in the world about what's going on. And so on, on the other side, I, I feel like um, I have a um, some, something that, that really is, is um, you know, gets me up in the morning and I, and I can feel good about and I can um, feel pride in and, and my children can feel pride in what I'm doing and perhaps even certain ways follow in my footsteps when they grow up. And so it, it's, you know, th- there's, there's lots of different parts of this story, some bad, some good.
0: Bill Browder ending our conversation there. Now, we arrive at the point in our podcast where I bring in my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of Britain's secret intelligence service MI6, for his take. So, Richard, we're going to get into that fascinating conversation um, with Bill Browder in a second. But I just first of all want to ask you what your impressions are um, of his his new book that's come out.
2: Well, it reads rather like a political thriller. Um, I mean, it, it, it's a very unusual book. I was expecting something more analytical and cerebral, um, but it's a sort of hot-paced thriller almost that recounts this series of events, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, I'm fascinated by it, and to read the book, you know, subsequent to the impressions I had of him, they the the, the two seem almost written by it, almost different people. Because of course, in two thousand and five, two thousand and six, that period, I think he has still had a very different view of the well. We all did of the economic opportunities in Russia.
0: Right. He was uh, he was quite pro Putin at the beginning, and he's quoted in the New Yorker in a piece from two thousand, saying that Putin uh, was going to um, uh, was going to be good for business, and this was at a, at a time. Uh, this was after uh, Yeltsin had a, had allowed Russia's oligarchs to mal- manipulate the economy for their own profit. And Putin came in and started reining back the oligarchs and Browder was in favor of that. And he, uh, he even said a few years later, uh, we want an authoritarian, one who's exercising authority over mafia and oligarchs. And he added that Putin has turned out to be my biggest ally in Russia. Uh, how how the tables have turned.
2: I think the general reaction to Putin when he initially took power was positive. I mean, we've talked about this before in a different context. Uh, There's no question that someone like Browder was worried that, you know, the Russian economy was being ripped off at that stage by sort of ruthless oligarch exploitation. And I think, you know, Browder saw Putin as a force for good and someone who would take more control of the situation and wouldn't allow this sort of financial anarchy to develop. Um, Of course, you know, an awful lot of water has gone under the bridge since then. But Browder was the guru on Russian investment, Russian startups. And, you know, he was the, the, the person who had this... Uh, extraordinary expertise and bear in mind this extraordinary access. I mean it's I think Browder's sort of family history is fascinating. <laughs> His father was um, leader of the American Communist Party, uh, which is a pretty extraordinary thing to have been in that period. Uh, obviously a huge sort of interest to the FBI. Uh, was sort of accepted in Russia as a political figure. And then Browder goes in as the arch-capitalist and uh, and plays an entirely different role from the one that his father preached, but at the same time is exploiting those extraordinary Russian connections that the family had. I mean, he, he, he was in a unique position.
0: Yeah, no, it's a fascinating backstory. I wanted to ask... We briefly touched upon the security precautions and measures that he has to take, uh, given that he has a big target on his head. Um, He's caused uh, a lot of pain and annoyance uh, to Vladimir Putin and to a lot of Putin's allies. If you were Bill Browder, how worried would you be for your own safety, given everything that you know about how Russia operates um, and how Russia does uh, behave towards uh, foreign citizens?
2: Well, I think my comments on this might be a little bit provocative. Um, Reading the book, Browder was clearly the target of what I would describe as Russian lawfare. And they went after him with every legal mechanism that they could muster russian assassinations which of course have a long history have almost exclusively been of russians themselves russian citizens um, okay they may have changed their citizenship and become members of another country but ultimately the russians have killed their own kind you only have to go right back to trotsky you know whom Lenin ultimately had murdered in Mexico. And there is a, a long record of the Russians assassinating dissidents and opponents of the regime, both internally and externally. I would find it hard to pull out of my memory the example of an assassination by the Russian state, or let's say suspected of being a state, operation of someone who is not a Russian citizen and Browder was an American citizen. And that's why I think if you read the book carefully, all the hype and all the incidents, and it's written like a thriller, are around legal issues. Now, I'm sure what the Russians wanted to do was to get him back and stick him in some dreadful prison You know, for 100 years or 50 years, you could say that's the same as assassinating him.
0: One recurring theme uh, in the book and in our conversation um, was the perceived, frankly, uselessness uh, of many national institutions, be it British, be it Swiss, uh, be it European institutions. When it came to standing up to Russian corruption, to dirty money flowing out of Russia, uh, there was that extraordinary case of the Danish bank that, after doing an audit, after an after a, uh, investigative yeah. journalists who worked with Browder to look at at corruption and 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 the flow of dirty Russian money, found that there was more than two hundred billion dollars had flowed out, had flow dirty Russian money had flowed through this bank in Denmark. Denmark, which is one of uh, you know one of uh, you know it's a European country it certainly claims to have to, to be transparency to adhere to the rule of law and then also like Swedish banks and other Scandinavian banks an awful lot of corrupt Russian money flowing through these these mainstream banks um, it was an extraordinary indictment from Bill Browder on uh, not just the not just Western banking inst- institutions, but also uh, the, the legal systems in a number of countries and particularly in the UK uh, of how how vulnerable they are uh, to malign Russian criminal influence.
2: Yeah, Julia, we have nothing to be proud of. Uh, In terms of the way we treated the Russian community, particularly in London, and you've produced this other extraordinary uh, example of the Danska Bank, uh, and that applies to a number of other banks, particularly in Scandinavia, actually, uh, which traditionally have had close links with with Eastern Europe uh, and with Russia in particular. But I'm sorry to say that, you know, we had a very laissez-faire attitude towards Russian money coming to London. Uh, We had a very laissez-faire attitude towards the British legal community using its expertise uh, and its sort of respect for the process that exists in the UK. Uh, in a way which was exploited ruthlessly by a lot of wealthy Russians whose money had very questionable origins uh, and who were certainly involved in significant money laundering. Um, I'm pleased, I think, to be able to say now all of that has changed. Uh, But there's no question that the government turned a blind eye to this problem as it involved because the financial benefit to the uk of having all this money washing around in the city was significant and you know the rumors about putin's wealth and the ripoff that he's taken as a percentage from the oligarchs the houses the palaces you know the girlfriends the airplanes uh, where is the money stashed um i mean browder in a way because of the Magnitsky affair and his persistence. I mean, what's extraordinary in reading that book is the courage and persistence of Browder in pursuing this objective. And in a way, you know, he becomes Putin's nemesis. And you can see why Putin was so aggravated and desperate in a way to silence him because this one man was in the process of, as it were, undermining Putin's, financial and long-term ambitions not not as a politician but as an individual
0: well i do want to get into putin's finances because i find that a fascinating subject to to get one's teeth into but i do have to ask um since you feel like the tide is turning uh in terms of standing up to malign Russian influences, I, I, I have to ask you about that shelved Russian report into, uh, into the report into Russian interference into British politics that was compiled by British intelligence services. Um, and that was ready to publish before the 2019 election, but Downing Street blocked it until after the public went to the polls in the general election and Boris Johnson won that resounding victory. And of course, uh, a lot of that report featured heavily on a number of Russian donors to the Conservative Party. What, do, do you really think that our political system um, has improved in terms of standing up to to Russian influence i mean there are so many things we could talk about boris johnson and his his links to russia and he's recently getting flack uh, even though it's been out for a while the fact that he ignored intelligence warnings about uh, about evgeny lebedev the former owner of the of the independent um, who is the father of a, uh, who is the son of a kgb officer warned against uh, uh, Against having links with them, and he promoted him to the House of Lords. He's now Lord Lebedev of Siberia. I mean, what what do you make of of Britain's independence from Russian influence right now?
2: Well, there's, obviously, there's a residue of influential Russians. I, I mean, I think you've probably got to look at the individuals and try to assess, you know, where they are in terms of their support for. The regime, uh, the extent to which they've broken with Russia. So I think it's a little bit tricky to generalise um, and to say that you know all of this leads one to the same conclusion, because there are certainly Russian families and Russian individuals that you know are really anti-Putin and have left Russia uh, because they can't stand the regime. There are those who have you know made accommodations with them. Russia to preserve or with Putin to preserve their wealth um I mean I think I can say this in my old age about Lebedev no head of MI6 is in the House of Lords no former head of MI6 is in the House of Lords but the son of a senior KGP officer is I find that a little bit anomalous
0: (laughs) I do want to ask you uh Some uh, of Browder's um, really important contributions has been lifting the veil on some of these money trails because uh, it is often said that Vladimir Putin is unofficially the wealthiest man in the world. And a number of Russian experts uh, believe that he has spread his wealth through a number of different ways. Uh, One particular Russian expert I I spoke to recently um, uh, who, who used to work for the British government Told me that the way the Russian government operates, the 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 kleptocratic Russian government works, is by by the means of obshaks, which is basically like a slush fund, Uh, and it's similar to how organised crime groups operate. There is a there is no bank account that says Vladimir Putin, or even a, a bank account. Of one of that one of his friends is sort of holding on to him for. there's not a single sort of bank account that is earmarked for Putin. There is rather this what is known as an obshack, the slush fund uh, of vast sums of money and 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 part of that will be used for Vladimir Putin. Part of that will be used will be used um, for other senior Russian officials. but it's far more it's more of a mutual uh, pot of money. Uh, that has come from the usurpation of, of of Russian state assets. So, what do you, what do you what do you know? What have your contacts told you about Putin's financial situation? Uh, where does he keep his money for his rainy day? And and do you think there will come a day when he steps down from the presidency in order to enjoy this wealth that he has accrued over decades? I
2: do recall and uh, through. My peripheral involvement, actually, as a witness in one or two court cases, um, I can make some observations. I mean, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There is no account, you know, with Putin's name on it. Um, and the money, you know, is held anonymously, but is easily accessed. In other places, and certainly the trails are complex through holding companies and whatever, and, and don't lead back to Putin. They may lead back to other Russians. Um, so, in a way, he has nothing, but he has you know whenever he needs it or when he wants it, he has access to it, obviously. Uh, but you know, like many great dictators. Uh, I just wonder whether he will ever enjoy the benefits or the fruits of his ill-gotten gains. Um, It's rather like that poem by Shelley um, of the ruined statue lying in the desert. (laughs) Look on my works, ye mighty. (laughs) (laughs) And they, he, he, I, I would confidently predict and this, yeah, look, I would confidently predict that Putin is not going to enjoy his ill-gotten gains. Uh, I think dictators like Putin do not. He's made a dreadful mistake over Ukraine. What the outcome of that will be is difficult to predict, but you know, he's 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 going to come to some sort of unpleasant end whether it is um, his health or an intervention by, uh, as it were, another Russian group. I I just can't see him uh, going off into luxurious retirement.
0: That brings us to the end of this week's episode of One Decision. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. We drop new podcasts every Thursday. Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath by Bill Browder is out now. And you can follow Bill on Twitter to see more of his work at Bill Browder. You can also follow us. We're at One Decision Pod. From me and the team, see you next time.